All right, everybody, welcome back to episode 38 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your regular host, Kim Bumani. Today, I have a guest, Pranav Shiraman of Sports World Debates. He was last on episode 21. Uh, this was June of last year. We had a pretty good conversation about the state of NBA basketball, and we're in the new year now. Um, so my second, well, first guest of the new year, actually, and we have a bevy of things to talk about. But before we dive right into it, you know, I want Pranav to uh, shout out his product. Um, he sports world debates is his IG page, and he goes pretty in depth in terms of talking about certain aspects of football, basketball, and even baseball. So, before we dive into it, Pranav, you know, talk about your page and uh, what's been intriguing you so far in the sports world. Yeah. So, if you guys don't already follow me on all platforms, make sure you do that at Sports World Debates. Um, like you mentioned on my Instagram and then on Twitter, um, I'm at Pranav Sri Raman. So make sure to go follow there as well. Um, and I do, I write articles for the Right Way Sports Network. So the link is in my bio on Instagram. So make sure you go check that out. But as far as the sports world, man, what when isn't the sports world exciting? I agree, man. I agree from so many things, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Antonio Brown, the NBA uh, is heading into really their 40th game phases when they're all star breaks. So while football season is kind of winding down as we head towards the playoffs, the NBA season has been heating up. And so speaking of AB, let's, let's jump right into it. The Antonio Brown situation, it's been highly regarded and highly publicized and not just the sports world, but world in general. Um, so it all started like this. It all started last weekend. Um, he got in a verbal spat with his head coach, Bruce Arians when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were in MetLife Stadium playing the New York Jets. This resulted in A.B. checking out the game completely. But before he checked out, he took off his jersey, pretty much took off everything, was bare-chested, jumped around the end zone, threw up a peace sign as he exited the end zone during the team's eventual Jets win. Um, and then thereafter, he kind of goes on a rant social media-wise, exposing Tom Brady's trainer, for charging him a certain amount of money because according to AB, the main reason why he checked out of the game was because he wasn't fully 100%. And Arians and the Buccaneer staff made him play when he wasn't particularly healthy. So the story is pretty much all over the place and we'll obviously be able to go in depth into it uh, as we talk about this conversation even more. But I guess the tip of the iceberg, considering the fact that AB was on a podcast recently that's been highly televised and publicized with a couple of spark notes, uh, my question to you, Pranav, is do you see A.B. not in these clear waivers, clear waivers today? Do you see him having an NFL future? Probably not this year, but an NFL future period as we head into the offseason and seasons down the line. You know, it's kind of tough. I saw Justina Anderson's report on Twitter the other day, and she said Antonio Brown will get a job in the NFL if he wants it in the future. And in other times in the past, when Antonio Brown has done crazy things, you think that's the tip of the iceberg with him. But then somehow, some way, he finds his way on a roster spot. And so I don't think it's going to be this year, obviously. It's coming to a close with the playoffs near. Um, I don't think it's going to be at the start of next year either. But possibly earliest mid-season next year, if he's going to come back on a team, that's when I would expect it. Um, certainly not with the Bucks or with Tom Brady. Um, but if he, if he were to come back on a team, I would expect it by the midpoint of next year or maybe even the 2023 season. But as for that, I mean, if it's not any time, then I, I really don't see it happening um, if it's not any time in that time frame. He's already 32, 33 years old, nearing the end of his career, I would say. Um, 
he, he should be focusing on other things in football at this, at this point in time. So yeah, that that's my take on it. Yeah. Uh, Shannon Sharp said it best on Undisputed, I think a couple of days ago, uh, tolerance is subjective to the amount of product that you put on the field. And when you get a guy like Antonio Brown, who's all over the place, uh, we all know from an ethical standpoint, he isn't the greatest guy. So anytime you bring him into your locker room, you're basically putting out there the chance that your locker room could explode with this guy in there being a loose cannon. But you're also putting out there the fact that he could come into a game and change life for you. And yes, he's not the wide receiver that he used to be two to three years ago, where by far he was the best receiver in the game, but he could still make plays and he's still a credible talent to say the least. So I think in large part, if you look at teams like New Orleans, Jacksonville, maybe Cleveland, uh, Baltimore, just I, I, so many teams around the league that I think could use an AB because of what he brings to the table as a receiver. But right. I think what might hurt him is the situation that happened in Tampa. I mean, it's been conflicting reports that, you know, from his camp, he didn't go back in the game because he was hurt. And then Bruce Arians came out, I think, today saying the main reason why the blow up happened was because A.B. wasn't getting targets. And I tend to side with the fact that it was the target aspect of it. And if that's the case, why A.B. exploded, that's why it didn't work out in Pittsburgh, which led to his exodus, because he felt like Juju Smith-Schuster was taking the spotlight from him, the second round receiver that the Steelers got from USC. So, if he's not getting all the attention, if he's not getting all the targets, he'll never truly be happy. And Tampa Bay was a unique situation, Pranav, where they were really going to lean on him in the postseason to be their guy at wideout. Chris Godwin's gone for the year. Um, Mike Evans has returned. And, you know, he might not be what he was early in the year because of his hamstring injury. And Rob Gronkowski shows flashes, but he's up in age. So in that slot position where A.B. was going to man, he was going to be Brady's prime target. And, yeah, you didn't get the target opportunities that you – wanted against the Jets to help you reach that incentive, but all of that would have been made up for during the team's postseason run. So I guess my question to you would be, you're right. He could focus. He needs to focus on things other than football. But if a team does happen to take a flyer on him, and I think we both feel deep down they would, which landing spot would be the most ideal for not just the organization, but for AB to feel like he'll get fully utilized as a talent? You know, at this point, I mean, I thought Tampa Bay with Tom Brady was going to be the perfect, like if any destination could make it work, it would be with Tom Brady. Um, but at this point, I really, like I can't make a pinpoint answer because of who we're talking about in this context. There's Antonio Brown. He's had multiple strikes. He's struck out multiple times and he's getting another at bat. Um, just opportunity after opportunity he squanders away. I could see Kansas City um, because of how good Andy Reid is at managing personalities, how prolific that offense is. Um, I could also possibly see Green, but I don't think either of those teams want to take the hassle of taking on Antonio Brown at this point in time. Uh, so that, if I had to pick two locations, it would be those two. But if it weren't those two, I, I really don't know at this point in time, especially with Antonio Brown. I agree. Like, it's really hard to kind of pinpoint a specific organization right now. I mean, what AB has done currently, uh, we have to all see how that will pan out down the line. The rumor is he's going to get surgery. But if there's this rumor that the reason why he didn't go back in the game was because of targets, is he really hurt that bad to where he needs surgery? Maybe it's something that 
can heal naturally and he can return. So we'll see how that plays out. But Kansas City is intriguing because the Chiefs last offseason were kind of, I'm not going to say all in because the teams that were offering this player a contract was kind of a proven one-year deal. They were really trying to get Juju Smith-Schuster. Now, Juju right. decided not to go to the Chiefs. And he decided not to go to Baltimore. He decided to go back to Pittsburgh, mainly because of the familiarity and whatnot. Didn't work out for him. He had the season-ending injury. So I could see the Chiefs kind of taking a flyer on A.B. because Andy Reid's pedigree throughout his coaching career during his Philly days in Kansas City to a degree is willing to take flyers on guys that are kind of misfits and kind of put him on his team so they can revitalize their career. And Mahomes could always use another target. I mean, right now, the jury on the Chiefs has been this year uh, double Tyreek, well, play deep against Tyreek, double Kelsey, right. and kind of let everybody else beat him outside. And mm -hmm. so if that other guy outside is A.B., now that's a mismatch. And then another team is New Orleans, but New Orleans is kind of tricky. They kind of right. currently have their A-B situation already at wide receiver Michael Thomas. He hasn't played in two years. It's pretty clear that the rift between Thomas and Sean Payton has been pretentious to say that, well, contentious rather to say that at least the past couple of years. So I don't know if Sean is willing to bring an A-B to the squad having to deal with those two warring dynamics. But I say the Saints because they do have a first round pick this year. They're probably going to take a receiver, but you can always use uh, as many weapons as you can because New Orleans is paying a price this year in terms of having one of the worst receiving cores in the league. So if they do decide to bring Jameis back, you want to surround him with as many weapons as possible. AB would kind of make sense there just from a receiver deposition, but he's still a talented player. I know somebody's going to give him a chance. I think it's ultimately going to come down to how AB approaches it because on the podcast that I saw, he was really upset about the monetary incentive that Tampa Bay gave him to start with. He felt like he should have been making Gronk type money, but he was on this prove it deal type contract. But it's pretty clear you're on your this prove it deal type contract because of your behavior. So for now, my question to you is if the contract aspect is going to be an issue for AB in the future when it comes to dictating where he goes, is there a way both sides can kind of meet in the middle to where he's happy? And he'll go out there and play to his fullest potential. And the team doesn't feel like it's making an empty investment in the end. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, I don't know why Antonio Brown went on um, the Full Send podcast, I believe. He went on the Full, Pen Full Send podcast and he said that uh, Rob Ronkowski is Tom Brady's guy and that he's getting his bag. But Antonio Brown is not getting his bag. But there's a reason for that. He hasn't given any reason to trust him, and he's yet again not giving a reason. He literally threw his shirt off. He threw his jersey off, ran off the field. He even talked about how he wanted to moon the audience today. Like, you don't act like that and expect a guaranteed-type contract. This is Antonio Brown. I think at some point he also needs to understand the context of who he is. He's always he's never going to get a guaranteed contract in the NFL. It, it, like if he wants to come back to the league, it's not going to be on a guaranteed contract. No team, regardless of how well he plays, regardless if he goes even three years without any problems, no team is giving him a guarantee. Not anymore. Not anymore. After everything he's done, there's just no way a team is going to invest a like invest valuable capital in securing Antonio Brown when you don't even know what his status is going to be the next week. I agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. I think for AB, your expectations for your career in the future need to adjust. If you're playing the game of football for the money, you're not going to get the money that you feel like you truly deserve because, lack of a better term, you're an idiot. 
and guys know you're an idiot. So they're going to go up to you with precautions due to your idiocracy in the past. And so now knowing that and maybe he'll understand this narrative as the offseason approaches and he's got time to think about it now what he should probably be focused on at this point is being in a situation to where as conceited as conceited as this is get your numbers up because at this point your career is about can you make the hall of fame and we both know he's a hall of fame caliber player but there was this guy named terrell owens who had to wait about three to four years to get to the hall because of his antics and extraness not just to the media, but to guys that he played with, teammates and other guys in his locker room. And so A.B. is kind of the T.O. of our era. And I think now to kind of solidify when that conversation happens, is he a Hall of Famer or not? You got to have the numerical aspects behind you. And he's nearing in on a thousand catches. He's nearing in on almost, well, he's got over about 15,000 something yards. So I think at, think at this point, it's about, uh, hold up. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So at this point, it's really about um just locking in to that point. Like your goals are going to have to adjust. Everything has to change. But if it's about the money and for a lot of guys, it is about the money. Like I'm playing at this point in my career late in the years to get paid. You're not going to get the payment that you're looking for. And so adjust your goals. I think now pad the stats and chase the Hall of Fame, chase the gold jacket. But, yeah, I agree. You're not going to get that guaranteed deal because you kind of set your own self up not to get it by being an idiot. Um, and now you don't have the cachet of in my past years, like a couple years ago, I had, I led the league in catches or I led the league in yards. Or I led the league in touchdowns. Those are eons away his Pittsburgh right. days, which is how he got that deal with Oakland. So I think that's what he's going to have to do moving forward. Yeah. I mean, at this point, Antonio Brown, I mean, I, I really don't like, he's a top five wide receiver of all time, in my opinion, arguably up there. Um, I think the lowest you could have him is around that seven range. He's one of the greatest to ever play. But like you said, with T.O., it took him a while to get in the Hall of Fame. And Antonio Brown has exceeded what T.O. did by like light years. What he has done is so much incredibly worse um, that you can't even begin to fathom like how long it would take him to even get in the Hall of Fame if he even makes it. Uh, because the Hall of Fame in the NFL, it's more so about the prestige and how you carry yourself off the field as well um, than more so than what you do on the field. Obviously, what you do on the field is important, but I think the prestige aspect of it, they really don't want to honor someone like Antonio Brown, who's done so much bad stuff off the field. So um, I, I, I would... I highly doubt he makes the Hall of Fame unless there's a new, like, like 10 years from now, there's a new voting panel, a bunch of younger people who would probably just vote on him based on what he did in as a, as a football field. But as of right now, I really don't see any way he's going to get in the Hall of Fame anytime soon. You're right. Um, I, I for sure can agree. He won't be first ballot. I think it'll be a while. It'll take a long time for sure. But yeah. AB's dominance is so surreal. Like when Calvin Johnson retired, he was, he was, he was the premier best receiver in the game for a two to three year stretch at his size, the way he played his ability to play inside and out exponentially at an elite level is amazing. It's just that these past few years, he hasn't been able to continue that dominance because he can't get out of his own way as a character. Like his character is just so flawed. 
And I think that's really hurt his chances of really even growing and evolving as a player and being a contributor to the team. And so look at it like this. I mean, if it doesn't work out with Tom Brady, a guy who vouched for him went all out to kind of embrace him and endorse him as one of his guys with the Buccaneers, I don't really see anybody looking past that as he deserves it because guys look at Brady as the Holy grail. And if you can't make it work with Tom, it's like you were a complete goofball, but he's a hall of fame talent. I say he'll get there. He'll be in the hall of fame. I just think it'll be a while. And knowing AB, he's going to complain about it. Knowing AB's fans, they're going to vouch for him. And honestly, there's nothing to vouch for. Like we get it. He should be in there, but you know, the semantics in it all, when it comes to being, eligible or being in the hall comes from voters looking at you as a ethical human being and he's just not an ethical guy as talented as he was on the football field um speaking of ethics uh the Aaron Rodgers situation a journalist hub Arkish Chicago media writer decorated media label and title in his own right executive editor at Pro Football Weekly he's an NFL insider for 670 the score in Chicago and he covers the Bears for the Daily Herald, which makes his sentiment on Aaron Rodgers not being his MVP favorite, MVP candidate, MVP vote rather, since he's a voter on the MVP in the NFL. It makes sense. Cover the Bears. Uh, Rodgers has dominated the Bears franchise for years, but his reasoning behind it was a little bit puzzling and does rain questions. So I'm going to read his quote and we're going to dive into it after the fact. So Arcus said, I don't think you can be the biggest jerk in the league and punish your team and your organization and your fan base the way he, Aaron Rodgers, did, and be the most valuable player. He goes on to later say, has he been the most valuable player on the field? Yeah, you can make that argument, but I don't think he is clearly that much more valuable than Jonathan Taylor, Cooper Cup, or even Tom Brady. So from where I sit, the rest of it is why he's not going to be my choice. Do I think he's going to win it? Probably. A lot of voters don't approach it the way I do, but others do, who I've spoken to. One of the ways we get to keep being voters is we're not allowed to say who we are voting for until the award has been announced. I'm probably pushing the envelope by saying who I'm not voting for, but we're not really supposed to reveal our votes, which is ironic because he literally just reveals his vote. So let's focus on Arkish. The fact that he spewed this nonsense out doesn't look good for the media voters as a whole, because now this narrative before he exposed himself of Rodgers might not get the MVP because of his vaccination stance kind of looks a little bit legit because I do think half of Arkish's perspective of Rodgers being a jerk is probably his vaccination stance and the other stuff he's done. And so stuff like this, does it raise a question to where should media members have such a prominent, prominent face or prominent level of power when it comes to deciding who wins these awards? Or should it be spread out more to media members, this percentage, coaches, this percentage, and then the players accumulate all those guys together to come up with a final answer? Um, I would say that the media could still vote on it. And it's accolades are never going to be a thousand percent right. Like, obviously, there's some outlier years where they get it wrong. They do get it wrong. But for most of the time, I think they do a pretty good job. Uh, voting awards like the MVP this year. I think Aaron Rodgers is pretty obviously the MVP. Um, he plays the most valuable position and no one's been playing better than him. Um, but as for the reasoning behind it, look, um, I'm not the biggest fan of the comments Aaron Rodgers made on Pat McAfee. Um, 
But with that being said, you have to take into account what he did on the football field. I know we just talked about Antonio Brown. I know that the NFL cares about prestige um, and that the award should go to someone who's been super valuable on the field while also carrying themselves off the field. But unlike Antonio Brown, I, I don't think being unvaccinated is some type of, you know, like, how do I word this? It's not some type of degrading act. Um, such as taking your shirt off, throwing the tea, misrepresenting yourself. Um, at the end of the day, that is his personal choice. Antonio Brown made a choice that reflects on the entire organization, while Aaron Rodgers made a choice for himself. And I don't think that should really come into the MVP race, considering the fact that it's an off the field. It's his personal choice off the field, so we can't really we can't really take it into any award that warrants on the field play. I agree. I do feel the media guy who's irresponsible of Hube Arkish was just irresponsible for him to kind of say those things because first of all, you're violating the ethics of keeping it in-house until the award is over. And then second of all, right. you do paint your other media members in a bad light because now guys are going to feel like, hmm, if they let this guy come in and have this respective thought, is he the only one? Is there other people that kind of think like him? So it kind of puts the credibility of those other journalists in a jeopardy because they feel like, well, there's one idiot journalist with this perspective or there are many more. Now with Rogers, you're right. It's set in stone. He's going to win the MVP, but I just feel like he hasn't been the most valuable player in the league. Now green Bay has been a revelation this year. And what I mean by that is Jair Alexander and Zendaria Smith haven't been on the field consistently all year. And those are the two most important defensive players on the team. So you would expect a defense when you don't have your two best players on the team to take somewhat of a step back. But they've been top 10-esque all year. Rasul Douglas has been a revelation from the practice squad with the Cardinals to a Pro Bowl arsenal for the Packers. He's been unreal. The pass rush has been somewhat been able to be consistent because second-year pro Rashawn Gary has turned the corner and has had a double-digit act season. And then offensively, as great as Rodgers has been, from a touchdown interception ratio standpoint, he's got 35 touchdowns, four interceptions. And I feel like that's the main reason why he is the MVP, the TDINT ratio. It's it's insane. He's got four picks. He's got 35 touchdowns. So he's not turning the ball over. When he does put the ball in the air, he's executing first downs and touchdowns. But he hasn't even surpassed 4,000 yards. Um, Tom Brady leads the league in passing yards. He leads the league in touchdowns. And, yeah, Tampa Bay had an embarrassing loss against the Saints that diluted Brady's chances of being – an MVP, but the Bucs are just one loss worse than the Packers. I just feel like Green Bay, it's been a collective effort this year for them to get to where they are. And they remind me a lot of that Packer team that lost to the Niners uh, in the NFC Championship game. They got blown out. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be the same fate that they faced, but that team was very balanced offensively, very opportunistic defensively, and then playing together as a team allowed them to be successful and get to where they got to. I do think probably, in my opinion, the more valuable players – have to be Jonathan Taylor and Cooper Cup. Like Jonathan Taylor, before last week against the Raiders, every time he ran for 100 yards, Indianapolis won. He literally changed the face of that Colts season for the better. Cooper Cup, yeah, he, he, he he's having a great year. And a lot of it has to do with Stafford giving him volume of targets. But when Stafford has had bad games, Cup has been able to keep that offensive flow by continuously able to convert big play after big play, get 90-plus yards. So – I feel like those two guys, the non-quarterback skill position players, have been more valuable to their respective teams this year than the quarterbacks. So that's really my personal statement on Rodgers.
Yeah, I mean, I, I would disagree because of the simple fact that quarterback is the most valuable offensive posi- position. And Aaron Rodgers, I believe personally, has been doing that the best level this year. Um, I mean, it, looking past the touchdown interception ratio, which is great. Um, I, I do think touchdown interception ratio is kind of an overrated stat in terms of it's only it's only a small sample of passes. It's only 41 total passes out of the hundreds he's thrown this year. It's not it doesn't paint the whole picture. Um, but in terms of efficiency, he's number one in EPA per play. He's number two in DYAR, number one in DVOA. The Packers offense is number one in nearly every um, advanced metric you look at. And he's the reason behind that. Obviously, they have a great run game with A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones. Um, but the passing attack is the reason why that offense is so prolific. And Aaron Rodgers is the anchor behind that. Um, so I would give it to him. Um, even for second place between Brady and Mahomes, I think Mahomes has really snuck into that conversation to the point where you could even put him over a guy like Tom Brady. And maybe if Mahomes um, didn't struggle with the turnovers earlier in the year and he didn't slump through those three games, maybe we're having a completely different conversation and talking about maybe it's Mahomes as MVP and not Aaron Rodgers. Offer points, offer points. Um, look, I understand because last guy I had on the podcast, last time I did it, uh, the guest last year, we had this conversation. This sentiment was similar to you, like, Quarterback's the most important position. Rodgers has been playing phenomenal. And he's important passing stats in his Green Bay offense attribute to that. My response is I've I've seen Rodgers, and, and this is unfair to do, but kind of not if you kind of see where I'm going. I've right. seen Rodgers right. have more yeah, I, dynamic MVP seasons. And because is, of that, all right, and because of seen, that, mm-hmm. yeah. No, no, you go, you go. We, we've seen better Aaron Rodgers years when he doesn't win MVP. We've literally, this is one of, this is like an average, average, average Aaron Rodgers season and he's going to win MVP. And it's only for the simple fact that they're not going to give it to a non-quarterback in this, especially in this era, unless it's a crazy season like what Aaron Donald had in 2018. But even then, Patrick Mahomes had a historic season in 2018, so they couldn't even give it to him. In this era, a quarterback is always probably going to win the MVP. And the fact that Mahomes had a slump for three games of the season combined with the early turnover, um, the bad turnover luck earlier in the year, and then with Tom Brady, um, that bad game against the Saints, although Aaron Rodgers had a bad game against the Saints, it was more recent in people's heads, um, combined with the fact that people like to look at touchdown interception ratio so much to the point where they overvalue that and don't look past anything else. I think that all the factors are just perfectly lining this up for Aaron Rodgers to win MVP. But yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, this is probably his, this is going to obviously be his worst MVP by far, by far. And that's the biggest thing for me. And what makes it even worse is why this is probably going to be his worst MVP season. Other guys that have legitimate chances to get it are having historic seasons. Cooper right. Cup has the chance to get the triple count. That hasn't happened since Steve Smith. Um, Jonathan Taylor single-handedly ran the Colts to the playoffs. I mean, they're 9-1 and one when he runs for over 100 yards rushing. Even Tom Brady leads the league in passing yards and passing touchdowns. So, in my opinion – the main reason why Rodgers is getting this push is two things. Obviously, one, Green Bay's number one in the NFC. You know, they've done what they need to do. They've beaten the teams they need to beat. They've got home field advantage for a second year in a row um, all through the playoffs. But another reason is, like you just stated, the touchdown-interception ratio. It's crazy. He's got 35 to 4. 
Brady's got the touchdowns, but Brady's also thrown like 12 picks. Brady's got the yards, but Brady's got the picks. Mahomes has the yards. He's top five in yards, but the interceptions have killed him to the point where guys focused on the interceptions from Mahomes. Everybody's like, he's having a down year. I'd love to have a down year when I'm like throwing almost 40 touchdowns and 4,500 yards, but guys are so enormous with the turnovers and turnovers are important to football. You turn the ball over, you have a chance to detriment your team from winning football games. But I think guys need to take, yeah. The positive output that Brady and Mahomes have on their individual offenses is so much greater than the 13 turnovers. Like you can, when it comes to those guys, like you could, could, it's like with some guys, it's different. Like you guys, you can look at a guy um, like Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield turns the ball over a lot, but he's not replicating that with the offensive output. Brady and Mahomes turn the ball over less than Mayfield but even in doing so, they are turnover happy, which Mahomes and Brady in the past haven't been super turnover happy. But let's say for this season they are, even though they really are. Their offensive output is so much greater than whatever negative people are saying they are. I mean, you you talked about it earlier, 35 to 40 touchdowns for both of them. I mean, they're just both having incredible seasons. People can't. There's somewhat of a stigma said they can't get out, especially with that early season slump with Mahomes. Um, and then Brady's recent struggles, especially against the Saints, that leave so much confirmation bias into people thinking, yep, that guy, that guy's turning the ball over a lot. He's not having a good year. Um, when in reality, that's not the case at all. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with just the norm of these elite quarterbacks putting up the yardages, putting up the touchdowns, but keeping the INTs as such low single-digit numbers that it feels odd when the season's over and you see a guy with 13 picks on the stat line and you automatically think, oh, like a great example is, you know, Matthew Stafford has the numbers. But if you see the turnovers that he's had statistically on the stat sheet and the games that he's played recently, it's been typical Stafford to the point where he's playing just like how he used to play in his latter stages of Detroit. It's just that he's on a better team. The team's able to neutralize his turnover poorly played, but his up and down plays a lot different than Mahomes. And then also another thing that, you're, that everybody's excluding is Mahomes and Brady are important to their offenses. They go where their play level is able to go with them. Stafford, which is why Cooper Cup's triple crown season is even more incredible, has highs and lows. And the Rams' offense, to be real, they're at their best when they're balanced. They're really at their best when they run the football. They've been able to discover the rushing game late in the year. And so for a guy like Cup to have the numbers that he has, with Stafford kind of being erratic at times with his decision-making, is incredible. So, you know, Rodgers, it's been a great year for him. Uh, He's got a lot of things going for him personally that obviously you can't control. I'm not going to hold it against them, but I do think it's stuff that needs to be realized. And I think when it's all said and done, when this MVP conversation is in the rearview mirror and we look back maybe in a couple years, I think guys will be able to say, man, they had a really good chance to get it. But, you know, they really kind of pander toward Rodgers because of the narrative. The quarterback is really important. Um, So it's clear you think Rodgers is going to win it. Um, I'm resigned to the fact that he's going to win it, but you're right. It's a quarterback award. It tends to be that way at times. And that's kind of how the cookie crumbles. But it doesn't really define who these guys are as talents. Rodgers, Brady Mahomes are still elite. But sometimes the numbers don't say it the way people want to. And a lot of it has to do with past consistency of guys playing elite and having those low turnover worthy numbers. All right. 
All right, up next, we're going to go to the NBA. Uh, Kyrie Irving is back for the Brooklyn Nets. Um, and Nets have been hovering in the first, second place spot in the Eastern Conference for a while. But it was pretty clear during that stretch before Kyrie officially made his turn against Indiana, return against Indiana, rather. He lost some games. Um, their embarrassing loss to the Clippers was very unfortunate. It was a Clipper team that didn't have a lot of starters, and they found a way to lose that one with the Nets. Kyrie comes back. They beat the Pacers. We know it's the Pacers. The Pacers have struggled all year finishing basketball games. That's why they've been underwhelming this season. But I felt the team's feel was different with Kyrie out there. With Kyrie available, now we all got to wonder how the vaccination process is going to go in Brooklyn because he's still going to be only available for road games. But if everything works out to Kai's favor, if he's there full-time for the Nets, are they a team that you expect to come out the East? Yes. Yes. Um, last season, I mean, I, I think this Nets team is still dangerous with Kyrie Irving on the court. And we saw that last night towards the end of that Indiana game. Um, last season when they had Kyrie, James Harden, and Kevin Durant on the court at the same time, they were the best offense in league history. And their defense eventually positively regressed to the point where it's it actually became quite solid. And this season... Um, if I'm not mistaken, they're one of the better defensive teams in the league. Um, and so I think everything can click for the Nets. Um, with the addition of Kyrie Irving um, to that offense, you're adding another shooter, another premier scorer. Um, the ball movement is just going to be so much better. Less pressure on Kevin Durant to do so much. Um, less pressure on James Harden, especially, to do um, not do as much. And the flow of the offense and the ball movement, um, the touches, is just going to be equally distributed. Um, within that offense to manage the load while also just maintaining efficient play. So I think with Kyrie back, it's huge. Now there is a count with Kyrie Irving being back and they're working on it. The Nets are working on it, but he cannot play home games as of right now. So that's the only negative uh, with the entire situation, but you still have Kyrie for half the games of the season because of where you play on the road. And that's still incredibly valuable. You're going to get all you can from him. He's going to play his best every night because of his limited, um, because of his limited appearances at this moment in time until things change. So that's, that's my stance on it right now. I think the Nets can easily be in a position to really take the East with Kyrie Irving as long as they're healthy, because that's what I expected them to do last year. And when they're healthy, I have no reason to believe otherwise. Yeah, with Kyrie, two things I want to address before we go deep, before I go deep into um, how important he is for them to get back on the team to help them win the East. Um, I do feel Kyrie's going to get vaxxed. Um, I think he was really humbled by the fact that he wasn't able to play basketball when he was out to where when he returned and spoke at the press conference, he realized that he wasn't prepared for the consequences. And when guys have asked to him, yo, are you going to get vaccinated? He's kind of answered it to where we're going to worry about that when the time comes day by day. So I think eventually he will get vaccinated. And then that completely changes everything. He's back full time. And now the team can make that push that they need to to get the seating that they need to in the playoffs. I think the number one seed in the East is really important because Chicago and Milwaukee and Miami are tough teams. And I think those are teams that are going to be jockeying for two and three. So if you are Brooklyn, you want to be able to get that one spot and maybe have a chance to get a more favorable first two rounds of playoff matchups in the Eastern Conference instead of being a two or three seed. And then in the second round, you're playing Chicago where you don't have home court advantage or you're playing Milwaukee again 
where you don't have home court advantage. So that number one seed in the East is really important. Now, Kai being back with the Nets, how does that make them be as a team when it comes to contending in the East? It makes them legit. I mean, offensively, he brings that individual scoring prowess that they don't have. And obviously getting Patty Mills on the squad and for ages, he's been huge. But Mills has been clutch in spot-up situations. And that's great. But what Patty can't do is he can't create his own shot consistently when the offense breaks down to half court like Kai does. And Harden coming back from his injury has kind of showcased that he's cool being the point guard. And for him to be a full-time point guard and get away with that without having to worry about balancing playmaking for Nick Claxton and scoring for my offense, Kai being there will take that offensive pressure off the low for him. And then he can kind of be that pro creator that he used to be when he was with OKC in his infancy days. So it makes this team legit. Um, the East is it's going to be tough, man. Chicago is a really nice squad. Milwaukee, when healthy, is a tough out. Um, so those are two teams that they're going to be competing with. So my next question with you is this. Is there a squad that can challenge Brooklyn? Or is it really going to come down to Brooklyn just being healthy at the right time to kind of neutralize all the noise in the end? I think there are a couple of teams that can match up well with the Brooklyn Nets. Um, I don't think that this is their conference necessarily, that they're just going to sweep through everyone. Um, But those teams are obviously the reigning defending champion, Milwaukee Bucks. You have to give them credit where credit's due. They barely lost any of their games with Drew Holiday, Middleton, and Giannis Antetokounmpo in the lineup. Um, And Brooke Lopez hasn't even played the full season. And they're one of the better defensive front courts with Brooke Lopez on the court alongside Giannis. So, I mean, they're still super dangerous, super well-built. They're coming off that playoff experience from last year. That's definitely a team that could take it. Um, all the way with the Nets, and we beat them. So I, I have all the faith that they could do it again. Um, and then another team that can take the Nets, uh, take the, take on the Nets is the Miami Heat. For the simple fact that they're not as talented, but I think they have the right personnel to match up with them. The point of attack defenders on the perimeter that isn't going to necessarily stop KD, Kyrie, and Harden, but it can give them a lot of fit. And you have a guy like Bam Adebayo inside who could shut down an entire offense at the rim, um, come be that help side defender for Miami. So I think their uh, defensive personnel is great. Obviously, uh, Jimmy Butler is one of the best wing defenders in basketball. He's going to be tasked with probably guarding Kevin Durant throughout that entire series. And then offensively, they have everything perfect roster construction offensively. You have a playmaker in Kyle, uh, in Kyle Lowry, who you added this offseason, who could also shoot the ball. Jimmy Butler is a really good playmaker. Bam Adebayo is a good passer for his position. And you guys, you have guys like Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero um, off the bench who could create a scoring plug and be that extra shooter in that roster. You have P.J. Tucker, who also provides defense and shooting. So I think that team's just built so perfectly, just tailor-made to match up with the Nets. Uh, would they beat them? I probably wouldn't be betting on that, but they certainly have a chance to, and I think they do match up really well. Yeah, all those teams you listed, and I'd even throw Philly in there. I think Philly's an underrated team. Right. Teams with size, because Brooklyn is still a pretty small team. Obviously, they're going to be leaning on Aldridge and Claxton as the season goes on to be their starting and backup big, respectively. But Aldridge is kind of old. So he's not going to be able to protect the rim like he probably would have been able to when he was in his prime. Claxton is a little light in the chest, so he has a chance to get bullied against more physical bigs. Uh, Milwaukee, like you said, when they're healthy, they're probably the most for real team in the East that's not the Nets. I like Chicago. Chicago has been a great story. 
But I feel like a lot of Chicago, and I think somebody hit it on the head, they're so locked in this regular season. And a lot of it has to do with having some misfit toys in our squad. DeRozan rejected, Levine slept on, Lonzo slept on, that they're going all out every night trying to prove to everybody in the league that they have what it takes. My biggest issue with the Bulls when it comes to playoff basketball is their ability to deviate from iso ball when they get down. Um, I've been to a couple of Bulls games live. When the games get tight, they really lean on DeRozan and Levine to go one on five. And that's not good basketball. I mean, if anything, Billy Donovan should know this because when he coached um, Russell Westbrook and KD one time before KD left, they really leaned on iso ball, too, when the going got tough. And that allowed teams to easily key in on them and neutralize them offensively. And that's how they lost the Golden State Warriors series. So that's my worry with them. With the Miami Heat, you know, the streakiness of Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson will be the key. Now, Hero has been phenomenal this year when it comes to being a consistent uh, punch off the bench scoring the basketball. He's been unreal. But my issue with Hero and Duncan last playoffs was they disappeared. And they were the main reason why Miami got swept. So, uh, especially Duncan, who can't really dribble consistently to create his own. If they're not knocking jumpers, what else do they provide offensively? And with the Philadelphia 76ers, they haven't beat. And when Embiid's healthy, the Sixers are legit in the East, even without Ben Simmons. But it's about Embiid's health. And then when Embiid gets in foul trouble, can they kind of create a consistent source of offense? But I'm sold on Brooklyn. I know a lot of guys aren't as sold on Brooklyn. They're very skeptical. Um, what is something that you think guys are sleep about with the Nets, even with Kyrie back? Because even with Kyrie back, cats are a little bit skeptical in terms of them being able to lean on their all-stars, their all-NBA Hall of Famers to get back to the mountaintop out east. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what I'm skeptical with the Nets, it's the same thing you hit on, the size aspect of it. Um, Nick Claxton last year showed a ton of flashes, but he's just not that consistent big man right now. And they really don't have that interior force who's going to match up with the bigs in the East, like Giannis, like a Joel Embiid. Um, and I think that's going to be a huge come playoff time because they have really no real counters to that. And it's just going to force the offense to have an even bigger load and just go outscore, outscore, outscore. And I'm not sure how it's just despite them being one of the best offenses I've ever seen. I'm not sure how sustainable that is in a seven-game series. They definitely have to improve um, some sort of defensive personnel. Maybe they're switching scheme. They could switch something up. Um, but the size is really – the lack of size and the lack of competent defense on the interior is what's causing a little bit of concern. But if they're all healthy and Kyrie gets vaxxed and he's able to play every single game, I'd still probably pick them to win the Eastern Conference. I agree as well. It's size. Size is the issue. You beat this team by dominating them on the inside. That's why Milwaukee and Miami uh, resonate with me the most because Bam's versatility at the five for the Heat and Giannis's presence along with Lopez when he comes back as well. So that's how you beat this team. Um, I don't think you beat this team playing their style of basketball. I don't think you can go up and down. That's kind of my issue with the Bulls. They ride with an up and down type of up-tempo offense. I don't know if that's uh, – going to be something that you want to play with with Brooklyn in this series but you know the next day I've Kai back if he's able to be here all the time and I think he's going to be able to get to that point they're the team to beat and unless one of these guys get hurt I think that's going to be the team to come out east if one of them's hurt they're beatable because that offensive firepower that you're afraid of just isn't there because as great as KD is he can't score 100 points by himself and as great as Kai and Harden are even they have off nights so when they're all there um, they can all go nuclear, and that just presents a whole wave of 
problems for the opposition on the other end. Um, next up, the rookie of the year conversation in the NBA. It's been a ton of rookies to choose from in terms of who has a chance to win the award. And early on in the year, Evan Mobley was getting the love, and I was happy for him because I felt like coming out of the draft, Mobley had the highest ceiling, in my opinion, out of all of them because of what he showcased as a five-man at USC. It wasn't fully untapped because, you know, USC had their vets and went on on their team, but he reminded me a lot of a combination of Anthony Davis and Kevin Garnett, could protect the room, had offensive upside with a jump shot and a nice little post game, and he showed that early in the year. But that's tallied off a little bit. He's been in and out. Of the lineup with the COVID situation, Rubio's obviously got hurt. Kate Cunningham's improved his play, but his team's not as good. And we know about Scotty Bournes and Josh Giddy. So it's early in the year, Panoff. Um, who do you feel like has the best chance to get this award? And do you feel like this award will ultimately come down to which players the most impactful to their team at during their playoff push? Meaning, whoever wins it is probably the guy that has his team in the postseason. Yeah, this is a very, it's a very difficult um, award. to. It's not a difficult award for me to pick necessarily, but the criteria, um, what I think is going to happen is difficult to predict. Um, right now, I would give it to Evan Mobley. I would give it to Evan Mobley with Franz Wagner being a really close second place. But I give it to Mobley because he has been the most impactful rookie, and that's probably going to be my criteria. Who has been the best and most impactful at their position in Mobley? He's not only just a good defender for a rookie, he's one of the best defenders in the NBA already. And that provides so much value for the Cavaliers. And you combine that with the fact that he's shown, he's shown so much scoring potential. Um, he's been, he's been efficient inside. Um, he's had his jump shot struggles. He's had his finishing struggles, just like every other rookie, but his, the flashes have been insane and he's been consistent throughout the entire year. Um, he's been a good short role passer as well. I mean, Everything there is about Evan Mobley, there isn't anything to dislike about his game. And he's been the most impactful rookie, in my opinion. So I think if the season ended right now, I'd give him the award. But man, Franz Wagner is making a great case. He's shooting above 40% from three recently. Just absolutely on a scoring tear. Combined with his wing defense, that's really good. I still think Cade can also make a great push for it. He's been a great playmaker. The Pistons' best on-ball and off-ball defender this season. Um, he was in COVID protocol. He's been extremely efficient um, ever since that early season struggle. But man, this rookie of the year, this rookie class is just incredible all around. But if I were to give the award out right now, I think it would go to Evan Mobley. And I'm not sure how I could see anyone dethrone him for the simple fact that I don't see any other rookie matching his level of impact this season. Yeah, Mobley was my first pick too. Um, I did have Scotty Barnes somewhere in second, but like you stated, uh, Toronto's finally been able to get healthy. And so now that they're healthy, uh, we realize Scotty Barnes has an impact, but not as big of an impact as when OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam are out there and are able to be efficient on both ends on the floor. That's what makes that Raptor team go. Franz Wagner has been amazing. And I think he was slept on a lot coming out of uh, Michigan because of his skill set, his size and whatnot. Everybody was wondering, could he have the ability to be a flexible wing that can play the four or the three? And with the Magic, when everyone thought Jalen Suggs would be the guy that they would lean on to kind of gauge where this franchise will go, he's out with the injury, and Franz Wagner took it to another level. And I'm happy for the Magic. They finally look like they're building a little bit towards 
some level of prosperity or a glimpse of a future because before Suggs went out, he was starting to get his footing down in the league and Wong is putting it all together. As well as, you know, when Mo has been out there, he's starting to somewhat show he can be an NBA caliber big. Um, so Wagner's that. So I think those are the two. Now, Mobley, you can really make a case as great as he's played. You know, you could say he's the second best player on that Cavs team. I think arguably the first one is Josh. I mean, is um Allen, not Josh Allen, but Jared Allen, rather. Jared Allen. Um, his impact and ability as a rim protector has been phenomenal. His offensive productivity has been great. Garland has been savvy. And so, you know, Mobley's impact has been crazy. And I think it's going to be one of the main reasons why Cleveland is going to be a playoff team this year. And I think that's the big thing. He comes in. He makes such a big impact. They're a postseason team. And this will be the first time the Cavs are a postseason team, if it all pans out, in the post-LeBron era. Like, that, like that is crazy. And I obviously, before LeBron um, was drafted by the Cavs, Cleveland was a pretty solid franchise in the late 80s and in the 90s somewhat. But then they got LeBron-centric, and that's been a main reason why they've been inept when he hasn't been there. And so a lot of it has to do with Mobley and his impact. Now, want to touch base on Cade. You kind of touched base on him a little bit. He probably won't win the award. But he struggled early on in the season. He's been able to pick up his footing recently. Do you feel like when it's all said and done for Kate after his rookie year, Detroit will be willing to kind of put the keys into his hand and build a team around him? Or are they going to find a way to try to continue to make the Killian Hayes, Cade Cunningham backcourt work? I don't think it does. I think personally letting Cade be that guy as the floor general will open it up for um, Isaiah Stewart and Sadiq Bay, but how do you feel about that situation? I am completely out on Killian Hayes. I don't think he's that good of an NBA player, which is unfortunate because I was really high on him in the pre-draft process, but I just don't think that pairing is going to work. He's not really excelling at anything. Um, he's He can make good reads at times, but he can't handle the ball um, at a high level, which limits how good he could be as an on-ball creator. He's not that great off the ball. He can't shoot. He can't drive. And he's a terrible defender. So that really just leaves you wondering with what is he good at? And that leaves you with really nothing at all. And I think you have to move on from him. He's a clear negative asset. Kate is that Kate is their point guard. Kate is their best playmaker. Um, he's arguably their best scorer at this point as well. He's the best on-ball defender, as I said earlier. He's their best off-ball defender. He really is, he really is the Detroit Pistons. That team is just so much worse with them off the court. And he's been creating so many high-level opportunities for his other teammates, but they just don't cash them in because the supporting cast is not up to par. And so I think with a talent like Cade Cunningham, how I viewed him coming out of Oklahoma State, you have to build around him. You have to build around him. That's absolutely what you have to do. If the season ended today, the Pistons would be a lock for a top-five pick, possibly number one again. They have the worst record in the league. You draft a guy like a Paolo Banquero or a Chet Holmgren, Another franchise piece that can go alongside Cade Cunningham. I'd personally go with Chet because of I, I think he has higher upside, especially defensively, and that can be a good pick and roll guy with Cade along with a good floor spacer. Um, but you could also go with Paolo. I'm really high on him as well. Uh, but like you have to you have to surround Cade with another star level player. I think Cade can be the best player on a championship team one day. And then you surround him with another co-star. You start building that foundation, getting other young players. You could be complimentary role players, can shoot the ball, can defend at the high level. And I think the Pistons can be back in business. It just comes down to how well they could draft and how well they could surround Cade Cunningham with the talent he deserves to have around him. 
it took a minute for Cade to kind of make people realize why everybody was clamoring to trade with Detroit right. for that number one pick. But we realize now he's legit. And I think what makes him the most legit is he's so impactful with and without the basketball. He can spot up. He can have the ball in his hands and make plays and he can get after it defensively. So really in the pre-jab process for me, he was like a more versatile Luka Doncic. And you see it like he's doing everything well. And I think that's the that's how you make a great NBA player. Like if you're looking for an NBA player with the intangibles, with the unselfishness, with the impactability, with or without the basketball, it's Cade Cunningham. So Detroit has a special one there. And Detroit has a great chance to fast track the rebuild. Like you said, they're going to have a top five pick again. They have a chance to get another high caliber piece on their team. But what they also got going for them are, while they didn't hit home on Killian Hayes, who I agree wasn't that high on them either. I, honestly, the summer league is where I completely cut the ties because I was like, okay, summer league, maybe he shows some level of improvement. And he didn't. He just looked like he was just out there. Um, Sadiq Bay and Isaiah Stewart were hitting gyms. Now, Sadiq Bay has been very inconsistent this year. He just recently started to catch fire with his shooting, had that great contested three point shot to help the team beat the Spurs. But just against the Grizzlies, he struggled as well. So with Sadiq, it's about consistency. Isaiah Stewart, I like him, but I do think his future may be as a rotational undersized big that can give you energy. So Detroit has a chance to be back, to be back and be back on the map in basketball. They just have to continue to build around Cade and really formulate a competent team around them because there's a franchise in Memphis, known as the Memphis Grizzlies, who were able to really have a quick rebuild where in about year four, which is right now, they're one of the top four teams in the West. Detroit can have that type of impact led by building a team around Cade Cunningham and then molding the pieces around him that coincide with formulating a complete team. So I guess my last question, well, my last question on this topic about Cade, Dwayne Casey, do you keep him? I mean, the team hasn't been good, but the one thing that Dwayne Casey has been able to do well in the league is develop talent or develop talent that needs to be developed and he's gotten the best out of Hamadou Diallo he has gotten the best out of a Sadiq Bey he has gotten out some unique stretches with Isaiah Stewart we're both down on Killian Hayes but he somewhat got the best that he can out of Killian too so do you keep this guy on board with your franchise even though the team is one of the worst in the league today no and it's for the simple fact that all of that might be true except for Kate Cunningham um, if you're watching Pistons games, you could see that he's t- trying to use Cade like Danny Green, use him as a spot-up shooter, um, use him as an immobile wing on the corner, and that's just not who he is as a player. The ball needs to be in Cade Cunningham's hands to be at his best. He's obviously great off the ball, but you have to involve some movement around him. You have to work some sets around him, get him open off the ball. Don't just let him stand stationary in the corner and wait for passes from the inside to come to him. Get him involved. He's such a good self-creator. He's so good at diagnosing the defense and making perfect reads and creating high-level looks for others. The ball is best for this current Pistons team. There isn't anyone who could be competent competent enough to the point where you're fine with Cade being off off the ball. He needs those on-ball reps, and I think Dwayne Casey's not getting that for him. And if this is your franchise player, this is the guy you're investing in. And if you're not going to let Cade get those on-ball reps, then I don't really see a purpose for you really being there because your your number one goal is to develop the talent. And if you're not going to develop the best one at the best level possible, then what are you doing is my question. 
That's a great point, man. I mean, he's done a great job getting the best out of others, but I do feel like a lot of Cade's weirdness in terms of not incorporating his strengths on the floor has to do with the squad. And I don't know if it's up top two, pandering mm-hmm. to the limitations of Killian Hayes. So every time Killian's on the floor, he needs the ball to be somewhat of an impactful player because he can't shoot consistently enough to be productive off the ball. And so, but Cade can, he can cut, he can spot up and shoot well. So they do that to kind of coincide with Killian's weaknesses, which is why I feel once they cut times with Hayes, then you'll be able to see K go full throttle and be the face of that offense on the floor. And I feel like they're going to do that around maybe the all-star break, cut ties with Keenan Hayes and just be like, look, K back half of the all-star break. We're going to ride it out with you so we can build a foundation moving forward. Um, Up next, Josh Giddy. You know, Josh Giddy's a unique player. Um, I know you've, you've liked him. Uh, I've seen your story posts and and whatnot about Giddy. Um, My skinny on Giddy has always been, I do think he was slightly an overdraft because I mean, while he does everything well, he doesn't do anything specifically phenomenal. Um, but it's clear that him, SGA, and Lou Dortz can play together. So that's great. Like, they can play together and they're very productive on the floor. Where do you see Giddy's role being on the team? Is he a guy that you can see continue to be a starter? Or as OKC probably puts themselves back in the lottery picture again, if they get a high caliber player, maybe they force Giddy to the bench and maybe have him be a six man. Where do you see his role being consistently as a pro? I really like Giddy, as you mentioned earlier. And I think the sky is the ceiling for him for the fact that his scoring is not there right now. Um, he's had incredible scoring games. I know uh, you both saw that triple double the other night where he had 17 um, points along with um, digit rebounds and double digit assists. I mean, the best aspect of his game right now is his playmaking um, and his passing mainly his, he's, you know, he's a wizard with the basketball. Um, he just diagnoses the defense so well. It's not even that he has to create open looks. It's just that he finds, he knows where to create an open look and his pass velocity is so great. And he's so great at fitting, um, ball through tight windows that it really doesn't matter how, um, how much he's creating. He doesn't have to create off drives. He just finds guys. And hopefully you want him to become a jumbo creator, um, an elite one as he develops. But I think the sky's the limit for him for the fact that he's so big and he could pass at that level. And I think as the scoring develops, he could really become a high level talent in this league. Not maybe not a superstar, but I think he could become one of a better starter in the league. Um, as for what was your other question? Um, his future in the NBA, like, I see personally he may be like a fringe starter slash six, man. I'm only saying that because I'm skeptical about his offensive upside because I don't know if he's a good slash consistent enough shooter. And then his creativity off the bounce to get his own look outside of maybe a drive to the layup. It just isn't there right now. Now, I'm not saying he can't work on it and develop it. We've seen it all the times with players like Pascal Siakam to start. So you can work on it and add that to your bag. But right now, it's not there. So he kind of aligns me of maybe, best case scenario, manage a where you get some type of a skill set to where you could come in off the bench and be a spark plug, not just as a scorer. A taller taller Ricky Rubio, which is insane. Which which isn't bad. Or another guy that comes to mind, Boris Diaw, where he was with the San Antonio Spurs. Tall kind of got that build. He's not as big as Diaw. Diaw kind of let himself go with the Spurs. But tall kind of a point four who can play make for others occasionally if you leave him open he can knock down that corner three the consummate glue guy and 
that's where I kind of see him aligning to. And so that was kind of my question for you. Yeah, I, I think um, I think he's going to be a high level starter. Um, you might I, I have the same concerns as you with the scoring right now, but he has shown the flashes of being a good driver. He has had good shooting games. And I think over time, shooting is volatile among young players to the point where we're seeing rapid ascension when it comes to shooting. That's probably unlike with the exception of Ben Simmons. Um, We're seeing that young players, their shot is constantly improving. We're seeing rapid rises in three-point percentages, rapid rises in true shooting percentages among young players. And that's because of how much they work on their um, game and how easy it is to develop them when they're young and not bring in bad habits. We saw a guy like Anthony Edwards was not that efficient from three, but you saw the flashes. He can knock down threes at a high level. He's one of the better pull-up shooters in the NBA. So you're mainly evaluating for flashes in the first three years um, of a player's career and just going to see what they can be. And so far, I've been really impressed with Giddy. We'll see how his scoring progresses. Um, I think that right now, in terms of Giddy's trajectory, he has his scoring highs and then he regresses. And then he has a scoring highs and he regresses. Right now we're at the high. I think he's going to hit another wall again, but then he's going to go up again. That's the type of play he is. And I think that's going to be his developmental pattern. And my, the way I'm looking at it is, can he make those highs keep going up? We don't want to hit that regression peak again. Now regression is fine um, if it's not too steep, but you want, you want to more, you want to see, development that's going to be upward trajectory is my 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 take on it yeah the consistency aspect is always important for a young player and i think that's the gauge point for a guy like josh giddy I want to touch base on two rookies then i'll move on to another uh topic um jalen green has not been the most consistent so far um he had that situation where when he did play they won one game then he went out and they went on that huge win streak and then he's come back, and they kind of been up and down. Uh, the worst thing that has happened, and it's unfortunate, I don't think Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green are going to work. And I think that's because KPJ, I don't think, is a natural point. And he's kind of a all over the place as a character. Um, both of the situations that he's kind of had recently, the one in Cleveland and the one in Houston, has kind of showcased a level of immaturity that I do think will catch up with him. Now, he did make that crazy game winner at the buzzer over the Wizards, showcases his flashes offensively as well. But I don't think he's the natural point that they need. And Jalen Green needs to get stronger, needs to slow down. I think his pace of the game, I think he's kind of utilized his athleticism to the max, and I think he needs to rear that back a little bit. And he doesn't make winning plays, hence he's not a complete player yet. Uh, do you think – this is things he could work on or in the next three years, Houston's going to look back and regret not taking Mobley who I honestly thought they should have took second overall instead of Green. I think they should have taken Mobley second overall. And I think they're going to end up regretting it, but I don't think Green's going to be a bad player. I think Green is going to be a really good player in the NBA. Um, I think with young players is obviously we just touched on Josh Giddy. You're really looking for the flashes out of them more than anything. Um, and Jalen Green he has been inefficient this year. He really has. But then you see those games where he goes on a scoring outburst, um, 25, I think eight threes a game. 
And you're like, now I know why that guy went number two overall to the Houston Rockets. Now I know why the Houston Rockets were so high on him to pass up on Evan Mobley and take that guard creator. Now I know why. You, you get those games every so often. And I think you have to eventually, the hope is he can materialize those scoring outbursts into something consistent. Um, I, do you remember watching Anthony Edwards last year as a rookie? How he was really inconsistent in the first half of the year. And then as soon as the All-Star break hit, more comfortable in his role, he started becoming more efficient, got a new coach. I'm not sure if Steven Silas is going to go. We'll see how that works out. But he got a new coach who knew how to use him better, use him to his strengths, and he really went off at the All-Star break. My main concern with Jalen Green, um, I'm not really concerned with his scoring more than anything. I think his scoring is going to be fine. I think he's going to be an elite scorer in the NBA one day. My concern with Jalen Green, which I haven't seen much of, is the ball stops with him, and he doesn't look to create off of his drives. He's not looking to create for others with his scoring manipulation. That's my biggest area of concern for Jalen Green. I think he could progress into becoming a good playmaker, but he's just not there right now. Every When the ball goes to him, it's either going to be a shot or it's going to be a turnover. That's what it is at this point in time, and you could live with it as he's a rookie, but going into year two, going into year three, you want him to use that scoring gravity because he has so much of it. He's such a good driver. He's such a good shooter at times as well. He's shown that potential. You want him to start getting that mental makeup of his game going and realizing I am this good. I am this good at scoring the basketball that guys are going to guard me. They're going to give me intense coverages. And with that, I have to learn that. When I get intense coverages, other guys are going to get open and I could find them and create shots for them as a result of how great I am as a scorer. That's the next step I'm looking to see from Green um, as a player. If he takes that next step, the sky's the limit for him, but we just haven't seen that at all. And that's that's a concern for me. Yeah, I agree. And you said it, and I was thinking it right in my mind before you said it. It's an He's kind of having an Anthony Edwards type season. Anthony Edwards was very inconsistent the first half of the year. Then he started to put it together in the second half of the season. And even up to date in his sophomore campaign and his showing flashes, um, where at times when the shot's on, he's unreal. When that shot's off, the ball does tend to stop to him, and he doesn't make the impact plays necessary. Now, what he does have going for him that Green didn't have, he's got a defensive size. intensity, size, and size. a defensive in- his size, big time, and a defensive intensity. Like mm-hmm. green, the intensity isn't there defensively. The thing, and I, yeah. Before I don't, I don't mean to interject, but the thing with Ant and Green that's so different is, and obviously you talked about it. He's just so much better defensively than Jalen Green, um, and the potential for him being better defensively is just so much bigger, uh, due to the fact that he is built like a football player. He's built like a middle linebacker, um, and then Jalen Green scrawny on that end. He's not as smart as. Anthony Edwards on that end. And the other thing that makes me think Anthony Edwards is a lot better offensively is not only that he's a better pull-up shooter, but he's one of the best players in the NBA when he's attacking downhill. When he's going towards a basket, he's damn near unstoppable. I'm looking for him to develop. Um, he obviously doesn't get a lot of calls right now. I'm looking forward to developing more of an intermediate game to the point where guys have to respect him from the mid-range. And as soon as he develops that, he could just blow past guys and go to the brim or draw contact. That's the main thing for Ant's game right now. I think his passing has even improved from where it was at the start of last year. Um, but yeah, I think 
Jalen Green to take that similar step, but I think Ant's ceiling just because of how much of an athletic freak he is is so much higher. Yeah, Ant has the athleticism, the size, the defensive intensity when he activates it. He is a streaky shooter, but he's a he's one of the best drivers in basketball. Offensively, he's got the three when it's on, and he's always got the driving ability. Once he gets a mid-range, once he gets a post game, he's gonna be on a guard. Oh, like, like there's over. there's nothing it's you could do. Now, Jalen Green's arc, personally, I think he has a Vince Carter type ceiling, which is fine. Vince right. Carter was he was a very, he played a long time, um, slam dunk champion, all star caliber player for the Toronto Raptors. But I don't know if the intangibles are there. And Vince Carter was never the greatest defender either. I don't think Green ever will be either. And so it's fine looking back to tell your fan base, yo, we picked a Vince Carter caliber player, but Cade looks like an all NBA talent. Evan Mobley looks like an All NBA talent. You had even chance Scotty to get Barnes. even, even Scotty Barnes, Barnes even if he's Franz not an All NBA. Franz Wagner, if even if Scotty Barnes isn't an All NBA talent, he's an All Defensive talent. And mm-hmm. you're gonna have a guy in Jalen Green that may make an All NBA team. We'll make All Star. And Bar- Barnes, Barnes for the record is also a much better passer than Green, and right now he's a better jump shooter than Green. So exactly, you're really left, you're really left wondering. We passed up on a super high upside and Evan Mobley, who looks to be a generational defender. And we passed up on another guy who looks to be one of the best two-way wings in the league for a guy who might not ever put it all together. These are not questions. These are, This is not materialized. This is not me saying Jalen Green's a bust. But these are going to be questions if he doesn't really progress as a playmaker that the Rockets are going to be asking themselves in a couple of years, especially when it comes contract time. Exactly. It just makes me wonder, did – the organization fall into the loss of James Harden. And what I mean by that is we lost Harden. He was the main attraction. He was a superstar flashy guard that could drop 50, make the spectacular plays. So let's get another spectacular guard-based player instead of looking at it as, look, this is a new regime of Rocket basketball. This is a very deep draft. We have a pick of a litter at two overall. Let's pick the guy that when we plug in has the chance to be an all-NBA franchise foundational talent. That to me by far was Caden Mobley. Like I don't really think it was a question, and so I think yeah. he fell into a lull. And hope I hope it works out for him. But that's really the situation there. Want to touch base on one more topic, then we can wrap it up. The Boston Celtics, man. I mean, they're nineteen and twenty-one this season. Uh, they've underachieved for a second year in a row. I was having a conversation with my friend about the Celtics and their future, and I think the question we need to really ask: Does Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum work? And I'm going to before I before I you know toss it off to you, I'm going to put something out there. I feel like it could work if they had a point guard. They don't have a point guard, which means they're going to have to give up one of the two to get one. And what do you think by that? Because I see you're nodding your head vigorously in agreement. Yes. Yes, I am completely in agreement with you. I think this duo can work with an elite playmaker beside them, a guy like Damian Lillard, possibly. But what the market is going to be, you have to get Jalen Brown to get him because I'm not giving up Jason Tatum. Um, I, I see people debating Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown all the time. And every time they do, at the end of the year, we come to the conclusion that Jason Tatum is just a superior basketball player on both ends of the court. I mean, it happens every year. Nothing changes. Nothing's changed this year. Um, and so I think you have to get either a guy like Jalen Brown, you have to trade him in a package for Damian Lillard. But Damian Lillard has not been that great this year. He's kind of getting older. So I think another hope is you clear up cap space, 
you open up a max slot and you try to go after a guy like Bradley Beal, a guy who has friendships with Jason Tatum, a guy who could be a guard, really manage that offense. He's not an elite playmaker by any stretch of the imagination, but he could be a guy that could take some of that ball handling responsibilities and just be someone who can initiate elite offense. Um, I think that's a guy you could go after because the NBA is a star-driven league and you have to go get the highest level talent you can. Um, and then another floor general, a guy who could really just force feed Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, locate them when they're cutting, um, when they're um, in action behind screens. I mean, you just need a guy that can manage the floor. Marcus Mar has done that in the past, but he doesn't do it at a consistent enough level to the point where I like it enough. Um, I mean, obviously the perfect fit right now would be Kyrie, but you know what happened there. Um, so, I mean... In terms of the Celtics overall right now, their biggest need is a playmaker. They need a guy who could really leverage his scoring into creating open looks for Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum on the wings. And I think they could be really dangerous, but they're just not there yet. They're a piece away. And I really hope they can get that piece because I don't want to see this duo being wasted. I agree with you, but I think our perspectives are a little bit different. We both agree they need a, a playmaking guard. Um, and, but I, I don't think they need another... Kyrie Kemba. I don't think they need another guard that could come there and score. I think they'll be fine getting a guard who could come there and play make more so as a playmaker than a scorer. I think the guy that two guys that pop off my mind, which is crazy because they still score as well, but I think they're more natural playmakers. De'Aaron Fox and Malcolm Brockett. Now, Indiana, we agree they're going to blow it up soon. I mean, every time we every time people watch them, they're always in a close game and they find a way to lose. So they're going to blow up their team. Uh, Malcolm Brockton is attainable. But I feel like Indiana is still going to ask, yo, if we're going to give you Malcolm, we want Jalen. And so I and think wherever, right, and it's not going to happen. So I think wherever way Boston looks, they're going to try to make changes at their guard spot to get a playmaker. But I think what it's going to come down to is, are they willing to give up Jalen? So what I'm saying is, I agree. Um, look, I do think Jalen Brown has played better than Jason Tatum the last two seasons. But if we're talking upside in the next five to six years, I'm rocking with Tatum. That makes Brown expendable. That means Brown will have to go if they get the playmaker they're looking for because I don't think anybody in the NBA is going to give Boston any type of playmaker that's all-star caliber without them asking, can we get Brown or Tatum? So they're going to have to give up one of them. That's their biggest issue because, like you said, Marcus Smart has been their playmaker for them for the past two years. The problem with Smart is he can do it but he's really emotional and erratic. So he'll have a game where he'll give you nine assists and no turnovers, but then we'll have a game where we'll have more turnovers than assists and shoot the ball pretty poorly from the field. So they need a guy that has a certain level of stability. And I, I think guys like we see what Ricky Rubio did for Cleveland before he went out with the ACL. They got a guy in there that's a leader, that's a natural point. He made everything so easy for them in the half court, and that's why they kind of are where they are in the standings in the East. A Boston can get that caliber of a player – the sky's the limit because from a roster perspective, they're better than Toronto. They're better than New York. But right now, New York and Toronto are better teams than them because they have a level of offensive cohesion that they don't have. They've been playing your turn, my turn basketball with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And that has rarely worked in history. The only time it really worked was with OKC with Westbrook and Durant. But Durant's an all-time great and Westbrook in his prime was unreal as an athlete. And so Brown's a good player, not great. Tatum's a great talent that's been playing like a good player the last two years because of the inefficiencies. And a lot of that is because Schroeder is a scoring guard. And so when he's on the floor, he's trying to get his more so than 
initiate offense and get cats easier shots. They and he need can somebody initiate to take, offense, but that's not his primary goal. That's not his primary goal. Exactly. He, you're right. He can. We've seen it before in Atlanta. We've seen it before in OKC, even Spurs in LA. But he chooses to just get his natural point flow first. And so there's guards that are available in the market, but I think they should be looking more towards Fox and Brogdon type players than Beal Lillard because Lillard is just going to be another guy that they bring in that's going to take shot opportunities for Tatum. I think Tatum needs to be the focal point offensively because I think that will allow him to be more of a complete player. If he's with another guy that he has to compete with shots for, he's going to be focused on competing for shot opportunities than doing the little things to be a complete player. I think to make him the guy that he needs to be, have a team set up to where it's clear, you're the offensive centerpiece. But we have guys around you that can still make impact plays to make this team be better. And that will allow him to do the little things pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement with you there. Um, I think they need. I think Tatum has really come a long way in terms of his playmaking. Um, obviously, his off-ball defense has been really good. The main thing I, the main thing my concern with Tatum, and he's good at it when he does it, is he's not aggressive enough when it comes to attacking the rim, not getting downhill enough, not um, really draw, trying to draw contact. He tries to shy away from that, take those tough mid-range twos. And I think he could just be so much better if he just attacks the rim with full uh, ferociousness, like we've seen in the past. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much my closing thoughts on that. Yeah, and I'll um, close the topic by saying my great point. Um, he's a settler at times as a jump shooter, and I don't know if it's he doesn't like the contact at the rim or he's so confident in his mid-range game that he's attributed to developing from his high school days to college to the um, practices and um, individual times that he's had with the Lakers, Kobe Bryant. But you're also 6'8", with I'm pretty sure a seven-foot wingspan. When you go to the basket and extend, you're going to get the foul call or finish amongst the contact. He needs to embrace that aspect of his game more. I think that'll really fix the efficiency issues because there's been times where he's had bad shooting nights because he's still trying to settle last year in the second half when as soon as he started driving towards the rim where he saw the 50s the 60s the consistent 40 point games 30 point game um above 60 percent true shooting consistently that's a jason tatum that can always be there if he's just attacking the rim and he he did that last night he did that last night against the new york knicks um he did do that last night against the Knicks. That was the best game I've seen him play in a while. But the reason why Brown has been playing better than him is he's doing exactly what we're telling Tatum to do. Brown attacks the basket. By putting pressure on the defense, by attacking the basket, it opens up jump shot opportunities for him. And Brown, kudos to him, has improved his jump shot every year since he's come out of Cal Berkeley. And the main, and the main concern with Brown is he can't pass to save his life. He can't. He, yeah. yeah he's, he's not the playmaker there either, but – the biggest thing that I was talking to my friend about uh, is this. Um, teams are never good when the quote-unquote Robin, and in this situation, Brown is the Robin, is out playing the Batman, which is Tatum. That's not good basketball. I For an extended period of time, obviously in playoff series, I'm pretty sure there was a time where Kobe had a huge stretch of games when Shaq was in foul trouble. That's fine. But when we go two years, and in a two-year sample size, Cats can have a conversation and say, well, I thought Brown was a better player than Tatum for two months. No, that team's not going to be successful. It needs to be Tatum's supremely better than Brown, or they're on the same wavelength where Tatum is still excelling better than Brown, but Brown's matching it. 
the team needs Tatum to outplay Brown to be at his best. It really does. It, it does. I mean, that's and when he's not being efficient and Brown has to pick it up, you have matchups like you had against San Antonio where Brown's carrying a load because Tatum disappeared. And a lot of the reason why Tatum has disappeared is because he's settling instead of attacking the basket. So that's the really big situation there with Boston. I don't I, I honestly think Tatum and Brown don't work, but I feel like they can if certain things are fixed. And I think one thing that can be fixed is Tatum's aggression to the basket. And another thing that can be fixed is they can get a lead guard. But we'll see how it turns out in the end for the Celtics. But with that, that's the end of episode 38. Um, with Pranav, Shuram, and man, it was a great episode, man. We talked about a lot of aspects of the NBA and the NFL. Um, before I go, I'm going to let you talk about uh, things you're looking forward to in the NFL in particular. And I'll give you one last question. I know this is the biggest one. Um, the AFC is somewhat decided. We, we kind of know, for lack of a better terms, the Chargers or the Raiders are going to take that final spot. I don't expect the Colts to lose to the Jaguars, which means Baltimore's out. And the NFC is going to come down to the Saints and the Niners and who's going to get that final NFC playoff spot. I know a lot of people want the Niners to get in because the Niners have a quarterback. The Saints don't. But in all honesty, who do you feel like is going to take that last spot and represent the NFC? Well, not represent the NFC, but get that last playoff spot in the NFC playoff picture. I think the Saints are. I really do think the Saints are because I think the Rams might beat. Here's the thing. I think the Rams might beat um, the Niners Sunday, which might which would probably eliminate them, right, if I'm not mistaken. But I think the Saints are going to win against the Falcons either way. I really do. I think that's a favorable matchup for them. Matt Ryan is really inconsistent this year, and I think they're going to go – uh, that defense is going to show out. I'm not really that high on the Saints either. I think they could be really good when they have a healthy James Winston, a healthy Michael Thomas. That offense can be prolific combined with that defense. But I, I really don't know. Um, I have to look at the tiebreaker scenario. If San Francisco can get in um, with a loss, it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be extremely tough. But I think they could. But I think that I think the situation is more favorable for the Saints to get in at this point. Yeah, Pranav, I'm going to help you out. Uh, if the Niners win, they're in. Now, if the okay, Niners okay. lose and the Saints win, the Saints are in. Saints now, are in. Yeah, if the Niners it. lose yes. and the Saints lose, the Niners are in. So, basically, uh, the Ni- I don't think the, the Saints, Saints are losing. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think Niners the Saints to, are beat the Rams, basically. Yeah, yeah. the Niners have to in. beat the Rams. Yeah. Right, because, I look, I'm a Saints fan. I thought when they lost to Miami, their playoff hopes were over. Then I see they still have a chance, and I'm like, well, oh, they could they could get there because I, I think the Niners are going to probably slip up and Saints did their thing against Carolina. Look, I think New Orleans is going to beat Atlanta. Now, Atlanta always gives the Saints problems even when they were healthy, so it's going to be a tight, close-knit game. But what has really destroyed Atlanta this season has been offensive line and defensive line, they get dominated against better O-lines and D-lines. Like, their trench play is not there, especially in their offensive line. Buffalo, that's how they eventually were able to pull away from Atlanta. Their pass rush after time after time consistently got there to Matt Ryan because they weren't able to run the football, and that kind of decimated whatever chance that they have. So the Saints, obviously, with Taysom Hill at quarterback, they're not a legit team. So I, if the Saints do find a way to get to the playoffs, I don't think they'll last long. They'll probably get killed by the Rams. But I think they can get there because they have a top-five defense when healthy. And they set the tone with their front seven. They play tight man coverage on the back end. They have incredible safety and slot corner play. Atlanta has a chance to possibly go into the playoffs with a hamper. Atlanta has a chance to go into the last game of the year with a hampered Kyle Pitts as their best weapon. 
So their offense is already going to be much maligned. So as long as the Saints are able to execute field goals and score touchdowns, they're going to win their game. And the reason why I'm skeptical on the Niners is it'll be Trey Lance's third start. The Rams have been very susceptible defensively. I mean, Tyler Huntley didn't play bad, and had Baltimore had a chance to win. But that Niners secondary is so bad. And as long as Rock, as long as Stafford is able to have time and not turn the ball over, I see Cup having a field day against that secondary. And it's at home in SoFi. I see the Rams putting up 30 just to win a division and send a message to a Niners team that has dominated them the last two years, two and a half years rather. The Niners have swept in the past two seasons. They beat them early in the year. I expect the Rams to go out there and make a statement, which means the Niners don't make the playoffs, which is going to be crazy. Yeah. That, that, that would be a crazy scenario because at this point in time, I think the Niners are a better team than the Saints, but they're not going to get in if they don't beat the Rams because I think the Saints are going to beat the Falcons. For sure, for sure. Uh, great to have Pranav back on Sports World Debates. This is his IG page. Please follow him. Um, before I go, I'm going to let him say his spill on what he is looking forward to um, in the sporting weekend that uh, promote his channel one last time before we call it a day. So Pranav, closing remarks. Yeah, this weekend, a lot of football to look forward to. Uh, my Chiefs are going to be taking on the Denver Broncos tomorrow on Saturday afternoon football. Um, if they win, they could secure the second seed at worst. And with a Texans win, which I doubt is going to happen, but anything's possible on any given Sunday. Um, with Texans win, the Chiefs would have the number one seed. So hopefully they can pull off a miracle. Um, as for what I'm also looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to see how the AFC playoff picture shapes up. I would love to see the Raiders make it just because it's an easier matchup, but the Chargers are probably going to win Sunday night. I, I, if I had to be a betting man, I would pick the Chargers to win Sunday night. Um, just because of superior quarterback play, superior defensive play, I think that'd be good enough to carry them past a bad Raiders defense. I really do. And as for my page, um, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this show, um, make sure you can follow me on Instagram at Sports World Debates. Um, the link in my bio, it gives you access to all of my other resources. Um, my Twitter, at Pranavstri Raman, my TikTok, um, at Nav Sports, um, and then my TWSN author writing profile where you can see all my old articles um, is on that link as well. So go follow at sports world debates on Instagram, go to the link in my bio after you follow me and you can see all my content in there. But yeah, that, that, that's basically me giving my plug. Yeah, man, you heard Bernal with the plug, man. Uh, he's great at what he does. Um, one of the, one of the great guys on the IG uh, community. So for sure, check him out. Um, one of my closing remarks before we wrap it up for good. Yeah, interested in football, man. I mean, it's big, big week 18, first week 18. Well, not first week 18, but um, the first week 18 in this century, to say the least. Um, right. Intrigued to see if my Saints find a way to make the playoffs. If they do, that's going to be crazy considering the season that they had. I'd have to look it up for sure, but they would have to be the first team maybe in NFL history to make the playoffs after starting four quarterbacks during the regular season. It's It's been that wild and wacky. Uh, Kansas City, man, interesting to see them lock up the second seed because a lot of, a lot of guys slept on them. I know a lot of it had to do with hate for Mahomes and hate for the Chiefs because they've been a great team. But I never wavered in terms of thinking that all they had to do was resolve the turnover issues and the defense played just a little bit better. They'd be fine. I mean, the defense played at an elite level. Mahomes turned down the turnovers, and they've been great. I mean, outside of that Cincinnati loss, which 
there's really no shame because Cincinnati's been peaking at the right time. Kansas City's been playing some good football. A lot of things had to go against them to lose in Cincinnati. Yeah, a lot. A lot indeed. Um, rest of the playoff picture, man, uh, I actually have the Raiders making it. You know, um, that Raiders defense, you did say it was bad, but it's a lot better than the other defenses that they've had the past few years. And I think the main reason why is because they have some level of a consistent pass for us. And they've started to embrace the fact that Derek Carr isn't that guy. So we're going to run the football offensively, and that's helped them beat the Colts. That's helped them beat the Browns. And they've shown that they've been able to win the tight contested games against elite comp. The Chargers, when healthy, we can all agree, are a legit playoff team. I had them being a playoff team coming in, but it's in Vegas. Um, oh, the Vegas Raiders actually play the Chargers pretty close on Monday night football until the second half. So I got Vegas getting in, which would help the Chiefs exponentially because – Las Vegas does not match up well at all with Kansas City. I, I they just don't. So that that would be a blessing for the Chiefs to say the least. Um, and then the Niners. You know, I want the Saints to get in, but I want to see if can Trey Lance lead San Fran to the playoffs. They've had the Rams number for a while. Obviously, for a playoff football sense, it would be great for the Niners to get in because they're a team that can make an underrated run. But I do see the Rams locked in, turning the corner, and getting the dub at home which means the Saints would get in. So really a lot of the NFL playoff picture will be figured out completely by really Sunday night. So can't wait to see that there. Right. But um, this is the end of episode 38. I'll be promoting it on my own IG channel, Independent Intel. Um, Pranav, I'll reach out and have you potentially collab with the page when I put up the update of it being up there. Um, so we'll yeah, let that go for sure. The collaborative um, post, yeah. Collaborative post. So be on the lookout for that. Um, and you guys be on the lookout for episode 39 next week, potentially have another guest, but it's always good to be back. First podcast episode of the new year. We're going to keep this going. Um, you listeners stay tuned, pay attention. Great episode and see you guys next week. Peace. See ya.